for love divine and for all good that is good and true and lovely in human love, we give you thanks, our God. And as, as we now turn again to your holy word, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed. And we pray that you would teach us from it and give us all a spirit of humble, joyful obedience. Amen. Please be seated. If I could ask you to kindly pick up a Bible again and return to the Song of Songs, chapters 7 and 8, the verses that uh, Trevor read to us earlier. This is page um, 683 in the Church Bible, 683. And welcome back to uh, the second instalment from this strange, unique, beautiful book, The Song of Songs. If you weren't here last Sunday evening, then I do uh, suggest that you go on to the Trinity website and download Mark's sermon from last Sunday evening. Uh, he gave quite a lot of introductory material that I won't be able to cover again this evening, and also some excellent teaching from chapter 2, so please do um, take the opportunity. Uh, that was the first sermon I had ever heard from this book, and this, is the f- this will be the first I've ever preached, so it's kind of a, seems to be a fairly rare opportunity to get into this, uh, this unusual and beautiful book of the Bible, so don't miss the opportunity to hear that earlier teaching from Mark. I've described this book as strange, unique, and beautiful. Strange, partly because God isn't mentioned from beginning to end. Unique, because it is the one book of the Bible that gives us a sustained and detailed celebration of love between a man and a woman. And beautiful, because it does all of this in wonderfully imaginative poetry, Now, we needed to do some cross-cultural work in working out just how beautiful this is because this was a long time ago in a very different uh, Eastern culture. Uh, And all these kind of hair-like goats coming down the mountain seem strange to us. But if you can acclimatize yourself to the language, I think that you will appreciate increasingly the beauty, the delicacy of the expression in this wonderful book. The Song of Songs has every right to be called the Song of Songs, the greatest love song of them all. Now, I find in this evening's passage, which you recall was chapter 7 and uh, verse 9, partway through verse 9, right through to chapter 8 and verse 7, I find in this e- that passage uh, three aspects of love, three characteristics of what I think are God's ideal for a relationship between a man and a woman. I want to speak to you this evening about love's delight, love's devotion, and love's durability. Delight, devotion, and durability. Let's take each of these in turn. First of all, love's delight. The Song of Songs is full of expressions of pleasure and delight. 
See, for example, chapter 7 and verse 9, the very first part of our passage, where the woman sings, May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. Now, do you think that's the language of pleasure and delight? I think it is. In fact, this is the language of kissing. And in her thoughts and her experience and her language, kisses are certainly and truly sweeter than wine. And then in verse 13 of chapter 7, she says, At our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. The frisson of anticipation, of anticipated delight. And if I can remind you once again, before we go any further, that just about everything in our passage tonight is spoken by the girl. She doesn't do all the talking in this book. The man does, uh, I think, probably possibly about a third. But certainly this passage is mostly spoken by the girl. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the notion that a woman can enjoy making love is often assumed to be a 20th century discovery. But here we have a vivid example up to a thousand years before the time of Christ, so up to 3,000 years ago, of a young woman delighting in physical intimacy. A couple of things stand out for me in particular as, as being especially delightful in these expressions of intimate delight. First of all, I find a lot of dignity here. And isn't there something beautiful about dignified delight? After all, sex is not always dignified. Uh, the Bible pulls no punches about this. If we go back uh, to Genesis chapter to 19 and Lot's daughters, you get a particularly uh, crass uh, approach to, uh, to doing sex. The daughters say, in effect, in Genesis 19, the daughters of Lot, there's no man around here that we can have sex with. Let's get our father drunk and have sex with him. Is that dignified? I don't think so. It's horrible. It's ugly. But the love and the delight in the Song, song of Songs is dignified. The lovers in the Song of Songs treat one another as persons and not just bodies. Their desire is for one another and not just for it. They're interested in human dynamics and not just physical mechanics. They're committed to developing their relationship and not just practicing their technique. They are equally willing partners. When the woman takes the initiative, which is quite frequently, as in chapter 7 and verse 12, it's not, let's have sex, but, I will give you my love. Beautiful, delighted, and dignified. Another aspect that I find about love's delight in this passage, in this book, is the amount of communication going on. Throughout the song, they are talking to one another. Now, there's a thought for men and women, especially, who think they know one another well. 
Notice how in chapter 7 and verse 11 and following, she is talking to her lover, anticipating what they might do together in the garden. And they're forever looking into one another's eyes and paying one another loving, lingering compliments. How beautiful you are, he says to her. How handsome you are, she says to him. And this is all in God's word, the Holy Scriptures. So part of God's ideal for love between a man and a woman is that they should find delight in one another. There is delight in dignity and trust and mutual respect. And there's delight in looking into one one another's eyes and talking intimately, playfully, tenderly. Love's delight. But now secondly, love's devotion, as we find it in this book and in this passage. Love's devotion. According to chapter 8 and verse 6, love between a man and a woman is like a blazing fire. And of course, a blazing fire, especially in this weather, is a very good thing, so long as it stays where it belongs, in the fireplace. Human lovemaking is very good too, so long as it stays in its own proper bounds and limits. And human lovemaking belongs in the context of a lifelong devotion between a man and a woman. This is beautifully expressed, of course, in chapter 7 and verse 10. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. They are devoted to one another. Each will sing to the other, I, have, I, I only have eyes for you. But now, where is this relationship going? Chapter 8 and verse 4 repeats a warning that was first heard in chapter 2, and Mark mentioned this uh, last Sunday evening. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There is something of a break, something of a set of alarm bells here. Don't go too fast. Don't, Don't go too far, too fast. There comes a time in the relationship where the lovers need to make a definite commitment. This longing for commitment is expressed, I think, in a number of ways, but perhaps most clearly in chapter 8 and verse 6, where she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. It seems to me that the seal over the heart expresses private commitment. The seal on the arm perhaps more like a wedding ring or an engagement ring, represents public display and recognition. It seems to me, too, that the the private part of the relationship is essentially important, knowing which bits are for the two of them alone, which bits are for the bedroom, as far as the married couple is concerned, and which part of this relationship is for the public to know about and for public recognition. And I think it's particularly important, perhaps, to emphasise the public recognition of a relationship such as this one, the kind of recognition for which she longs when she talks about the private and then the public seal, the seal on the arm, on his arm. 
After all, the idea that's around uh, among some people today that getting married involves just a piece of paper is really very short-sighted. A marriage certificate is, when you think about it, no, no, no more just a piece of paper than are the certificates that you may have of your achievements and qualifications, or the deeds of your house, or a cheque for £10,000. That's all paper, but none of them are merely or just pieces of paper. They represent, they symbolise other things. They have real and true value. There is something important about this public recognition of a long-term, a lifelong relationship represented by a marriage ceremony. I do not say, of course, that marriage always works or that cohabitation, its alternative, never works. But cohabitation will always, I think, be inherently unstable just because it's a purely private and a provisional arrangement. Marriage, on the other hand, lends itself to stability, for it's a public and a permanent arrangement. Marriage is both a private and a public seal of a couple's devotion. But now speaking of permanence, we come to our third aspect of love from this passage. Love's durability. Found again in several ways, I think, in our passage, but no more strongly than in chapter 8, verse 6. A very well-known expression, this, from the Bible. Love is as strong as death. Love as strong as death. Let us fix it firmly in our minds that God's ideal for marriage is a lifelong commitment. Chapter 8 and verse 7 goes on to say, Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. And that idea of waters and rivers suggests that even lifelong commitment can and often does come under threat. The path of true love does not not always run smooth. Of course, many at the outset will swear undying love, but do they really mean it? On the day of their engagement, a young man gave his fiancée a rather expensive necklace. It came with a note which said, My dearest Diane, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. Signed, Tom. P.S. If we ever split up, I want this necklace back. (laughs) But to enter into marriage is to renounce the possibility of leaving it. Marriage is not until something or someone better comes along, but till death us do part. And when you think about it, it makes a huge difference when, uh, uh, if a, a, a couple were to marry, thinking that it might not be permanent, thinking there might be a door, a way out, an exit route at the other end. When marriage is entered into with a thought that divorce is a possibility, this can place an immense emotional burden on one or both of the partner, partners, constantly thinking 
and worrying. Does she still love me? Will he find someone younger or better than me? No, it's a lifelong commitment. Be clear about that at the outset. Now, it's been said that all marriages are blissfully happy. It's just the living together afterwards that causes all the trouble. Some couples, it's, again, it's said that some couples grow so far apart during their marriages that in the end, the only thing they have in common is that they were married on the same day. And it seems to me, too, that just as there are some women who want babies but not children, have you come across women like that? So there are some men who want a bride but not a wife. Think ahead. Here's a simple test when considering marriage. Not putting off, am I, Tom and Caroline? (laughs) Here's a simple test. Could you imagine being with this person in 10, 25, 50 years' time? Marriage is for life, not just for a wedding day. There are, of course, many things that both partners can do that can help to keep the flame alive. Tom Gledhill, in his excellent book on the Song of Songs in the Bible Speaks Today series, says this. Romance comes and goes and then comes again. It's a flickering flame that constantly needs to be fueled. The will to refuel and nurture is the true love that makes for survival of a marriage. We need to fan the flames by little acts of kindness, springing thoughtful surprises that break the patterns of dull routine. And it seems to me too that here at Holy Trinity we have married couples who we all know have been together for 40 or 50 or even more years. And we know and they, that they still delight in one another. They're still devoted to one another. And they are a joy and an inspiration to us all. And only yesterday, I have to say, that I, I heard a man talking about the photo, a photograph of his wife that he keeps in his study. This photo was taken on the island of Iona, uh, some while before they got married, and they've been married for 33 years. And what I heard him say was this, she was as beautiful then as she is now, and I know he meant it. That man was me. So be careful, think about it, plan ahead, do not enter into marriage lightly, but there is hope, there is joy, and for some of the, from some of us who have been married for longer than some of you have been alive, then there's encouragement too. Here then is God's ideal for love, sex, and marriage. Here's a wonderful affirmation of the physical and emotional delight that is to be discovered. Here is a beautiful picture of the devotion between a man and a woman. Here's a lofty goal and a challenge of working at durability. Is it worth it? Well, look at chapter 8 and verse 7. If one, one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly 
scorned. Yes, indeed, such love between a man and a woman is utterly priceless. But I've kept referring, haven't I, to all of this as God's ideal. And how far short we often fall of God's ideal in anything, let alone marriage. And after all, this is poetry, folks. In the Song of Songs, it's always spring. In the Song of Songs, the lovers are forever young. Yes, there are minor anxieties, but no concerns are expressed here in this book about paying the mortgage, contraception, where the children will go to school or university. But love in this life is not always like that. Maybe it's winter in more ways than one in your life today. In your life, in your home, and in your relationship. Just over the past week, I've come across the following just in my own circle of acquaintances. A woman in her 30s, married for 10 years and with two children, blurts out, not realising that she was going to say it in the first place, I just found out that my husband has been having an affair. A woman in her 40s receives a message at work telling her that her husband has been rushed into hospital as an emergency. An elderly mother shares that her son and daughter have finally separated now that their children have grown up. They're still good friends. They see one another two or three times a week, but they realise that they've always been unsuited and perhaps should never have married in the first place. A Christian gentleman in his 80s has recently lost his wife of 64 years. He says that he can accept it intellectually because she suffered so much towards the end. But he sheds tears of sadness every day because they were so close and he still misses her so much. Yes, it's good to have ideals to aim at, but we need to be realists as well. And of course, there are plenty of people for whom marriage is not on their horizon at all. As Martin has very sensitively prayed, there'll be those here tonight who are not married, but might be one day. There'll be others who have been married, but no longer are. There'll be still others who are single, either through choice or through circumstances. And there may be those too who find themselves attracted to members of their own sex. So let me conclude with a word to all. Whatever our personal situation with regard to love, sex, and marriage. According to the, G to the teaching of Jesus Christ, even the most delightful, devoted, and enduring of marriages in this life is not where it's all going to end up. In this remarkable teaching in Luke chapter 20, Jesus said this, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. The Song of Songs, in celebrating all that is best in human love, points to something still more satisfying and still more enduring. In its very idealism, the song points away from itself to something else. It points from the human to the divine, from the love between a man and a woman to the love between Christ and his church. 
Quoting the archetypal marriage text in Genesis 2 and verse 24, Paul says, says in Ephesians chapter 5, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he goes on to say, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And here is an eternal love, a transcendent love. Here is love divine, all human loves excelling. And here's a love that's open to each and every one of us. And it will offer the same delight, the same devotedness, the same durability, only on an infinitely higher plane than the most blissful partnership between a man and a woman can ever achieve in this life. And and there are some very beautiful and very blissful uh, partnerships that God is pleased to give men and women. Let us pray. Gracious Father, it is so easy for us to just look at the ends of our noses and to admire, to lust after, to long for physical contact and satisfaction. And we thank you for all the pleasures and joys that such human contact and love afford, whether it is close friendships or whether it is lifelong partnerships between a man and a woman in marriage. But we thank you too for your superlative, undying, sacrificial love. We thank you that together we do make up a bride, the bride of Christ. May we aim for love towards Christ and towards one another, May we aim too for purity of heart and behaviour as we seek to walk more and more closely with him. Amen.